TED Audio Collective. This is ZigZag, a podcast about changing the course of capitalism, journalism, and women's lives. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and I'm coming to you from a walk-in closet in a hotel in Palm Springs. I am here this week uh, hosting a session of TED Women, which I am so honored to do. But I also got to do the other work too, right? So here we are. And on this episode, I am so excited. I am talking to one of my favorite people, an investigative journalist who is pushing back on how things like capitalism and journalism currently work. And she happens to be a woman, Julia Angwin. Investigative journalism is about going out, asking a really big, important question, and then finding the data you need to get to get it. And oftentimes you have to collect that yourself. Our brain's gonna rot because of staring into phones all the time? <laughs> I don't know, seems likely, but we need data. I don't say this to be sensationalist, but Julia Angwin really is one of Facebook's biggest nightmares. If you typed in the word Jew, you could target your ad to people who call themselves Jew haters. And I was like, really, guys? How Julia pioneered new ways of combining journalism and computer science to uncover the unintended and sometimes gnarly consequences of how big tech's algorithms work. And how Julia just got $20 million from Craig Newmark, yeah, as in Craigslist, to start her own newsroom that will give away its work for free. Plus, the day I met Mark Zuckerberg. It's good stuff. We'll be right back. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Okay, open scene. It's April. A small group of big-time media execs and news editors from BuzzFeed, The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, about 30 people in total, they meet to spend the day together, locked in a hotel conference room in Palo Alto, to talk about journalism, the state of it, and namely how they're going to keep making enough money to pay for it. Okay, so I don't run a big-time news organization. We're getting there. But I was happy to be invited to join, especially when a surprise guest showed up to take questions. And it was Mark Zuckerberg. Long day. I wasn't allowed to record the roundtable interview with Facebook's CEO and founder. But I think it would be fair to call the mood in the room politely hostile. This was the man, after all, many of those media execs blame for their organization's struggles. Adrian LaFrance of The Atlantic, who was sitting to my left that day, later published a story called Mark Zuckerberg Doesn't Understand Journalism. Either that or he doesn't care. As she puts it in the piece, Zuck seems to be full of contradictions when it comes to journalism. I'll read you a little bit of what she wrote. With Google's help, Facebook has dominated the vast majority of digital ad dollars and eviscerated the journalism industry's business model, all while preaching the importance of journalism. 
while Zuckerberg says he, quote, believes deeply in the need to sustain independent journalism, he still won't pay publishers to license their content. Zuckerberg also said it's Facebook's responsibility to make sure people can get trustworthy news. But as Adrian points out, the platform now shows its users less news from professional outlets. Because, according to Zuckerberg, news is just not what people really want to see on Facebook. Cue silent rage around an expensive and very long and shiny oval table in Palo Alto. Close scene. I gotta say, I found that whole vignette so fascinating. Watching Mark Zuckerberg's body language, how he paused before answering each question. And I think the meeting made a few things very clear to me. There is no relying on big tech companies to prop up journalism. Civil's somewhat radical cryptocurrency experiment was actually really worth exploring because even if Civil doesn't work out, We all need to learn from people who are running smaller, more niche media operations that are thriving, including people like Jessica Lesson, a fellow journalist who organized the conference that day and who I grabbed for a quick interview about her business in the parking lot during a break. Our big insight was it was going to be quality, not quantity. We said we're going to write two stories a day that are exclusive, that become must-reads for business leaders, and all our energy is going to be put into that. Jessica is the founder of The Information. This is a subscription-only business news publication that just celebrated its fifth anniversary. I felt that the internet had ruined not the quality of journalism, but the business model around journalism because it had publishers chasing clicks and ads. Jessica is a force. She's the kind of person you would want to be trapped on a desert island with. The information has become a must-read for business leaders. And let's face it, it better be, because C-suite people are probably the only ones who can afford the information's relatively steep price, $400 a year. Okay, but let's say you want to do journalism to benefit society's bottom line, not just increase Silicon Valley's. What do you do then? Well, in Julia Angwin's case, You quit your job at the amazing nonprofit news organization, ProPublica. You join forces with your investigative computer scientist partner, Jeff Larson. And then you both convince the former head of the Wikimedia Foundation, Sue Gardner, to run the whole thing. Julia, Jeff, and Sue call their company The Markup. And they're in the midst of hiring 25 reporters and programmers with the over $20 million that they raised this year. And to understand exactly what they plan to do, it helps to go back to how Julia and I actually know each other. So she came on our previous podcast, Note to Self, about a year, a couple years ago. And she told listeners about a tool that she and her colleagues at ProPublica had built that anyone could use to figure out what Facebook knew about them. It did end up with a real robust series that we did last year on all the different ways you could discriminate on Facebook through advertising. We ended up finding dozens of companies discriminating by age in their employment ads. We found that Facebook was allowing you to buy ads for housing that discriminated by race, and they promised to fix it, and we bought the same ad again and showed they hadn't fixed it. So it did lead to this incredible wealth of stories about discriminatory advertising we never would have predicted. 
So fast forward to a moment in January. I hope it's okay that I'm telling this. So you and I made a plan to meet for a drink and we sat down at the bar and I said, "Uh, I'm thinking about starting my own company. And you said, oh my God, me too. (laughs) Uh, That was a crazy moment for me. And I was like, what is happening? What was going on in your mind? Yeah, I mean, I feel like it was the same for me. So at ProPublica, we'd been doing all these stories about discriminatory advertising, but like there was so much more that I wanted to do, right? Because there's more than just Facebook out there, right? Like the impact of tech on society is massive. So I want to know, just like everybody wants to know, like, is staring at your screen all day going to give me cancer or rot my brain? How much of Facebook is filled with hate versus real stuff? You know, and all of these questions demand answers and demand investigation. And I thought maybe this is the moment to go get those resources and see if we can really scale up this work. Yeah. So let's talk about like when you sat down to decide what the business model was for this. I mean, I feel like there's this huge conversation going on right now in journalism, which is like, Everybody's pivoting to subscription. We realize that there are big problems with advertising because of the data collection. On the other hand, oh, it still seems to be the only thing that's kind of paying the bills. Like, where were? what did you guys land on? You know, I think from the beginning, we were completely aligned on the idea of a nonprofit. Um, most of my work has been about, you know, the tracking surveillance economy So I was excited about building something where I could be aligned with the business side mission where it wasn't like they're doing all this weird stuff that's bad and we're going to write about that stuff but somehow pretend like it's not happening on our own site. So where was the money going to come from, Julia? (laughs) So we were going to go beg for it. So what we did when I left ProPublica in April, Sue and I basically got on the road and for months we just went to foundations and wealthy individuals and asked them for money. And what was, like, what was your pitch? Pretend that I'm like, <laughs> uh, I'm loaded. I made all my money on tech. And I'm like, wait, aren't you the woman who goes after the big companies that made this Silicon Valley place as wealthy as it is? What was your pitch? Yeah, well, our pitch was twofold. One, yes, we are going to go after those companies. And, you know, we are going to be an investigative watchdog on technology. But that we're going to bring rigor to the journalism, right? That we're going to have programmers and journalists together. The idea is to use tech in the newsroom in a way that is not fully realized in most newsrooms. Investigative journalism is about going out, asking a really big, important question, and then finding the data you need to get to get it. And oftentimes you have to collect that yourself. It's not existing out there, right? Like there are lots of questions that we just don't know answers to because we have to go find the data, right? We don't know our our brain's going to rot because of staring into phones all the time. <laughs> I don't know. It seems likely, but we need data, right? So that was really the pitch, that we want to bring scientific method to journalism. We want to really approach it scientifically. And who was like, yeah, this is needed, and I'm willing to back you with enough to actually get this off the ground? Yeah, I mean, it was super surprising to me that Craig Newmark stepped up. So he um, committed $20 million to our project, which is amazing, and we cannot thank him enough. Um, That gives us, you know, at least four years of runway before we have to think about fundraising. So Craig Newmark actually... um is a is a bit of a controversial figure in that, of course, he's the guy who created Craigslist. And so many journalists blame him for the reason why classified advertising left 
newspapers and and really drained a lot of media organizations of revenue. And there are some people who are like, oh, this is like payback time for him. He he feels guilty and he's that's why he's donating millions of dollars to journalistic associations. He also gave money to CUNY Journalism School, which is now named after him. Um, what what was your sense about why he wanted to do this? You know, I don't know that I can really speak for him. I will say this. I wrote one of the first articles about Craig Newmark and Craigslist in 1997. Wow. Yes, when I was at the San Francisco Chronicle. And I was a little cub reporter, and they were like, cover the internet, Julia. And I was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I remember I went to his apartment, and I wrote about this new phenomenon that people were listing things. And it was mostly an email newsletter at that time. And um, so I had met him then and, you know, seen him around um, at conferences. So I had known him for a long time. But um, but I would never have predicted when we left ProPublica, like, Craig would have been the one to step up. But I... Um, but now that he has, actually, it makes a lot of sense, right, because of this history of wanting to support journalism. And let me just say one other thing, which is, you know, I'm not sure that it's fair to blame Craig for all of the decline of journalism. You know, if you think about the ad revenues that have disappeared from journalism, Classifieds was a big piece of it. But if you think about the, you know, $60 billion a year that Google and Facebook make every year on online ads, um, I would guess that, you know, that is a large, large chunk of what newspapers used to get, right? And I don't see them stepping up to fund trustworthy journalism. (laughs) So I would just sort of point out that contrast. And correct me if I'm wrong, when you do see Google and Facebook putting in money into news initiatives, like, it's just not that much. Yeah, that's right. That's what I've seen as well. And I think a lot of people right now are debating, right, Google, Facebook, good for the world, bad for the world. And I think you could definitely say that there's open questions, right? Is it helping or hurting our political discourse? I think you could make arguments on both sides. But you know what's totally non-negotiably true? It's totally destroying the news business, right? And so if you are basically in a situation where the watchdogs of our nation, the people who are supposed to entrusted with keeping institutions accountable, the government, corporate, um, all of them are crippled because they've lost their revenue. And that is a direct result of the rise of the tech platforms, right? It takes their audience. And so I feel like you have to pick your poison. (laughs) And honestly, Craig is the best poison you could ask for because he has said he doesn't want to interfere with coverage. He doesn't have, he said he doesn't want to tell us any story ideas because he's not a journalist. He's not an expert. He would like just only, the only thing he really wants to do is he said, if there was something wrong in a story, could he email us and ask for a correction? And I said, sure, of course you can. Anyone can. One of the paradoxes of the fact that Google and Facebook have destroyed journalism's money-making ability is the fact that there's a lot of, like, amazing podcasts and a lot of media organizations, like, even just on Civil, these, like, 15 yeah. websites are publishing amazing stuff. How do you find the eyeballs? If you're not, you know, going to be clickbaity and all those things, how are you going to get people to come? Do they, is that the goal to have them come to like the markup.com or .org? The stories will all be Creative Commons licensed, meaning they will be free to republish. Wow. So our stories will go and anyone can publish them. So I found at ProPublica that meant an amazing reach. We also hope that readers will donate, too, because they'll see the work and find it helpful and informative. And so hopefully with a package of readers and donors, we can pull it off, fingers crossed. 
So I got to ask, I mean, are you enjoying this whole process? Like what's the part that you love and what is the part that you're like, wow, this part's not so great about leaving to do my own thing. So I'm absolutely loving the idea to like craft my perfect newsroom that I, you know, solves all the problems that I think exist. Of course, obviously I will create new problems, (laughs) but luckily I haven't quite hit that yet. So I'm living in the fantasy. (laughs) So that's super great. The thing that is breaking my heart every single day is I'm not writing. I don't think I've ever gone this long without writing a story. And so it's shocking to me and it feels weird, but I think it's better for the organization if I don't, actually. What What do you mean? Well, if I'm going to lead all these investigations and be a true mentor and leader for, for all the reporters, if I'm trying to do my own stories, that's a distraction. Wow. That's a huge sacrifice, I think, Julia. And I worry that you actually are the product. I mean, not to, you know, commoditize you, Julia, but like... <laughs> You're the star power. You're the reason why Craig Newmark put in the $20 million. You've got a special sauce, lady. Yeah, I know. And it's hard to say, right? Like, so maybe I will have to write. I don't know. I just, I find it really hard to imagine that I will do right by leading a team of investigative reporters and doing investigations myself. And so I guess I'm struggling with that right now. And I don't know the answer. And I I appreciate your saying that because I think it's an unknown at the moment. I think what always struck me about your work is that it's the question that you ask as a human being. You often, what was the one that you did most recently at ProPublica where, where Jen and I looked at each other shows, we were like, she just asked an obvious question. So smart. Oh, was it the Jew haters? Yes. <laughs> yeah, it was Jew haters. So yeah, I mean, that was sort of amazing. That was where we found that Facebook had this option, you could target your ads to all sorts of things. And if you typed in the word Jew, it would offer the, like, you could target your ad to people who call themselves Jew haters. And I was like, really, guys? That's really an advertising category? So I wrote about it. And then Facebook, uh, Sheryl Sandberg wrote a blog post apologizing like this. We didn't know about it. Apparently, they had some weird algorithm where anything you wrote to describe yourself on Facebook, they automatically turned into an ad category without any review. So if you wrote down that you're like a pig killer, like pig killer would be an advertising category. And Chew Hater had like about 3,000 people in it. So there were like that many people who had described themselves that way on Facebook, which is shocking. Even though I like to believe that I have a special brain and I think that's wonderful, the truth is we need way more of this type of work. And it can't just be limited by my own personal ability to output stories. Because I have a list 30 stories long that I want to get to, right? That's why we started this, because we can't get to all the amazing stories and questions we want to ask. So many more questions I wanted to ask Julia, too. Like, has she gone full Silicon Valley and started wearing, like, a uniform every day to reduce her cognitive load? And what does she think about people who say blaming Sheryl Sandberg for Facebook's management problems is actually anti-feminist? Oh, no, I was a lean out. Yes. (laughs) Um, Lean in was kind of upsetting to me um, as as a feminist. So much more good stuff. We'll be right back.
Okay, now for the more personal side of Julia Angwin. You remember last week's episode? Jen and I talked to the duo behind the mega original true crime podcast, Criminal, Phoebe and Lauren. The goal is not money for us. The goal is content, quality, reach. And so freedom be- also. And freedom. So because of that, we've been in a number of situations where people have been what they think throwing around big numbers. And I've been able a couple of times to say, what? And some people might say, why would you why would you do that? But I don't care. We talked about how they got their business off the ground and got their creative empire going. It was fascinating. It was inspiring. But there were two key factors that made those two women's experience as entrepreneurs very different than me and Jen's and Julia's. What occurred to me that was so different with that interview is like, A, they live in North Carolina, where things are far cheaper, and B, they don't have children. How how are you managing all of this? Because I am struggling. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's super hard. You know, um, I was thinking about my heroes of women journalists. You know, women are not um, in high enough roles in most newsrooms, but there are women who have guided me throughout my career. And I thought about the fact that almost all of them, when I really think about it, didn't have children. They actually made that choice, right? And so I was realizing, like, I was like, oh, no wonder this seems so hard. (laughs) Like, I'm doing it. With one hand or both hands tied behind my back, right? And these women barely got there with no hands tied behind, right? Because it was hard enough for them. And so I do feel like it is shockingly hard. I have one advantage over you. My kids are older. Not that much older. 11 and 14. I'm 11 and 8. Yeah, there is a difference, right? 8 still feels small. I also have a supportive husband. My husband's a professor, and his hours are flexible, and he has stepped up massively since I started this thing. Really? Yeah, which has been wonderful. He really, he said this really sweet thing to me. He said, you know, I always wanted to start my own company and I never did and I regret it and I want to make sure I support you because this is so important and you should do this. So it has been great. That said, it is no joke. Like this morning, my husband threw out his back over the weekend. And so I had to do the whole breakfast, but I had to get to this interview that I was having with a candidate. And I was late for the interview and I felt like a complete jerk because you're trying to woo someone, but you're like, you can't even show up in the meeting on time. It's like, you know, it's not fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have a nanny who we've had since my kids were born and she's You know, honestly, most people by this age don't have full-time, but we have kept her full-time because I need that backup. I just need, because my husband travels a lot. He actually works a lot in Africa, yeah, on work and sustainable development in the developing world. So his trips are, like, it's hard to get in and out of Africa in less than a week. It's often 10 days. And it's like, so I need her to be able to sleep over if I have to also travel, right? So we have to overpay, basically, you know, for childcare just to have that security. And so that means, okay, fine, our car is 18 years old and it rattles, <laughs> you know, okay. <laughs> Do you feel guilty ever? You know, I have moved into a post-guilt universe, actually. And It took a long time and a lot of therapy to get there, but I really feel like your kids do what you do and not what you say. Mm. And so I hope that I'm modeling for them 
you know, a woman doing her best, but really trying to break through barriers. And so I kind of have convinced myself, and probably this is rationalization, (laughs) that that compensates for maybe the lack of amount of hours that I'm spending with them. Yeah, because I'm listening to you and I feel guilty on so many levels. One, of course, to my kids, because that just seems to be... I'm still working on that. But then also like all these women who might be listening right now who are like, I wish I could afford a full-time nanny. Think about like what I might be able to accomplish if I could do that. And I, every time I want to complain, I just remind myself of how good I have it. And then I remind myself that's why I have, I have a responsibility to do a job where I really feel like I am hopefully helping I sound so cheesy, but make the world like a little teeny bit better. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Like that is such a privilege, right? And so, yeah, so I think about that often. And yet somehow, of course, it's still hard. How are you planning on incentivizing your employees? I have thought long and hard about why I decided to leave New York Public Radio and why I wasn't like, no, I can make this work here. And I worry that like, you know, we we are only as good as our teams, right? I do believe that very much. And I'm don't want to make I'm worried about repeating the same mistakes. Like how do you how do you help somebody that you that is on your team feel like they're growing, feel like they're also being compensated, but also like do the work that you need them to do. Yeah, I think it's hard. I think um, one thing is the mission, right? Having a clear mission, um, I think is something you can explain. Like we are driven by, you know, the markup was driven by the desire to investigate the impact of technology on society. And that's something that hopefully people rally around. But I agree with you that everyone's human and there's a huge amount of like, cultivation of humans that needs to be done. I think of it the way I um, think of sourcing as a reporter. So I remember there was a moment in my career at the Wall Street Journal where I was spending all my time out and about interviewing people, developing relationships so that they would tell me things, et cetera. And I suddenly realized that I wasn't getting anywhere. And I thought, oh, I have to spend as much time sourcing inside my organization as I do outside my organization. And so I remember the moment where I actually got a babysitter two nights a week, and I made a commitment to go out with my colleagues for drinks twice a week. And all of a sudden, all the things started happening for me. And I like I got myself an investigative team, and I started my investigative series. And I realized I had to invest in those human relationships just as much as I did externally. I'm making a face right now. I know. So two, like two nights away from your kids so that like so that your colleagues like you so they do their jobs. Part of that rubs me the wrong way, but I'm also part robot, so there you go. It's it's really true that it shouldn't be that way. But my experience is it is that way. And so I I think you just have to do it. You have to invest the time. <laughs> Did you enjoy it though? I did enjoy it. Yeah, I did enjoy it. And um, I'm an extrovert, so I do like spending time with people. I get more energy from it, and I think that's not true for everybody. Yeah, honestly, like as an as an introvert, that's um, – I have to be very careful about where I spend my energy, and I, I've gotten much – I think part of my success later in life is getting better at that, that I don't burn out as hard because I recognize the signs. And going out for drinks with colleagues, I think I would enjoy it, but I would have to – sacrifice something else in my life that required extroversion. And that might mean being present for my kids or being able to have a conversation with my husband later. 
Yeah, I don't know. I think um, women, we hold ourselves to a really high standard, mm-hmm. you know? Like, you have to be perfect for your kids. You have to be perfect with your husband. Like, I'm just letting a few balls drop here and there. <laughs> like, I've gotten to this new point with my husband where I'm like, you know what? I love you, but I can't talk about my day because I'm kind of just tapped out. And so we're not going to talk about our days. <laughs> but we can talk about what's for dinner, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, speed round. Things that I've been wondering about this morning and wonder if you have as well. <laughs> you're so busy. Are you going to go for the uniform look? The idea that like your closet is pared down to maybe three outfits. No choice needs to be made in the morning. This is what you wear. You always look the same, but you always look good. The Elizabeth Holmes black turtleneck option, right? Well, that yes. didn't end that well didn't for her. Well, no. <laughs> Um, I aspire to the uniform, and yet my closet is not uniform. It is actually uniform in the color scheme. It's basically all black, gray, and navy. So I guess I've adopted that. But I really want to get to a uniform because I am feeling this cognitive overload. And yet I don't have the budget to buy, like, to, like, decide and buy a whole thing and it's going to wear out what I have, and then it probably will all fail. Yeah, I keep thinking that too, that actually, if I pared down, why does that seem like it would be more expensive to me? But I don't know. I I don't know. I did rent the runway for a while, and I just, um, I could not deal with amount of decision-making involved. And also, it wasn't that professional. It was much more frilly. And I was like, guys, I am not going around with frills and pink and whatever. I need everything black and tailored. Okay, next question. Food. How do you deal with food? Because I am traveling a ton. I'm trying to be good about packing snacks so that I'm not like my my go-to is like popcorn and wine is what ends up happening. Oh. Oh god, this is sort of embarrassing, but I have started fasting. <laughs> Oh, really? I've just given up on food altogether. So I've decided to travel days is just fast. It's just too much freaking work. So um, I fast one day a week. I usually try to make it a day that I'm traveling so that I don't have to make those decisions. I find it really relaxing. It's so weird. But what? just the cognitive burden of not having to think about it. It's The real trick is just water. You put a little salt in your water. And somehow that salt get, keeps you from getting, like, a headache from hunger. And then suddenly, like, your body just gets over it and they're like, ah, whatever. I just do it one day. At what point do you switch over to the part where you're not, like, going to eat your own hand? I don't know. It's weird. I don't really get that hungry those days. I can't explain it. I, I'm not even sure I can explain why I'm doing this, but I've started doing it and I'm really enjoying it. Actually, I feel like what's happening is just because I'm having, like, decision fatigue, right? Yes. So starting a new company, there's so many decisions we have to make, right? We were just making a decision about which type of recruiting software to use to our job listings, right? Like, everything is a decision. And so I feel like what's happening is I'm cutting back on decisions, right? So yeah. I'm like, one day a week, I don't have to make decisions about eating, and then I feel, like, relaxed. Huh. It's weird. So what's your, like, what's your little bit of pleasure those days? Like, what's your little treat to yourself? Um, oh, God, I, this is all so embarrassing. Yes. I've just become a completely ridiculous person. So now I meditate. That's your treat? <laughs> I love meditating. I feel so good afterwards. And for, wait a minute. Okay, so you end a meeting and then you go into the hallway and, like, no. close your eyes and everyone knows that Julia's having her treat right now? No, 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 no. No. Oh, I have a huge believer of treats first. You treat yourself before. I don't wait till the end. Never wait till the end to treat yourself for anything. So for like my stories, I celebrate before they're published. Yes. (laughs) 
I believe in treating first because it turns out that the end is always strangely disappointing, in my opinion. I don't know why. No matter how good it is, there's something disappointing about it. And so I have decided (laughs) that you have to celebrate first before any things have happened. So I wake up in the morning and I'm so happy and I have my meditation time and then I do yoga no matter what. I do yoga every day. Every day? Every day. For how long? Um, At least 45 minutes. Yes. What time are you waking up, woman? It's early. I wake up early. Five? Sometimes. Sometimes five, often six. So... But I've realized I can't get through the day. Like, I just cannot get through the day without those two things. And then all day long, I feel delightful because I had my time. I'm not waiting to get my time later. I already had my time, my own time. Mm-hmm. Kids are not allowed to bother me. Husband not allowed to bother me. Although, how many times does he walk in while I'm meditating? Oh, all the time. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of embarrassing to admit all this stuff, but I really am like a deeply Californian woo-woo person, I think, at heart. Okay, last question. And this one's a little bit tough. Sheryl Sandberg. I am reading about how people are saying that it's sexist that she's the one being thrown under the bus for Facebook's tactics over the last year, two years, uh, in regards to data breaches and privacy and Russians and hackers and all the rest of it. I'm dying to know what you, as a feminist and as someone who has done a lot of work that has brought the the really horrific side of Facebook to the forefront, what your take on it is. Mm, That's a good question. I mean, the truth is she is number two at the company. And so it's fair for both number one and number two to take responsibility. That said, like, the buck stops at the CEO, right? And so ultimately all of this is Mark Zuckerberg's problem. But, you know, look, we just found out that she basically approved the hiring of a company that did a smear campaign about George Soros that was basically anti-Semitic, right? And that's no good. And it's not just her fault. It's Mark's too, right? They're both Jewish. And so that type of thing is something that it's really it doesn't matter what gender no. you are. It's just it's not, it's not the right way to live your life and just certainly not the right way to run a company. Were you a lean-in fan? Oh, no, I was a lean-out, yes. <laughs> um, lean-in was kind of upsetting to me. as me a, too. As a feminist, yeah. I feel like it was, the whole thing was, here's a misogynistic culture, but if you just do these five things, you can fit in and not piss off the men too much and still get what you want. Well, okay, but <laughs> could we maybe just address those structural issues? Like, women don't have childcare, right? They are crippled on so many fronts in these in meetings and men talk over them. And like, it just, it's sort of like, the answer isn't just try harder, right? The answer is flip the script, right? Which is what you and I are doing. Start your own company. Because I, I was never going to win that game. No. I don't know. I feel like, yay us, we're starting our own companies and we're going to flip the script. And yet here we are mired in the, you know, it, it's not any easier. If anything, it's harder doing your own thing. It is harder, but I think the potential for impact is higher. Um, and so 
I guess I feel like every one of us has to chip away with our own little chisel and all of the change seems small, but I have great hope. Actually, I'm weirdly an optimist. I have great hope that the world will be better for my children. I do want my daughter to see a different world where consent is something that people take seriously, where she doesn't have to face me too, where she sees women running their own businesses, like where she sees maybe perhaps we might address some of the racial inequality and income inequality in this country. And so, I don't know, we all have to try. I'm with you. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. After our interview, Julia kind of gleefully headed out to go meet with the small core team that she has already hired, who are already starting to concoct her investigations into big tech companies. Yes, those investigations take months, but I cannot wait to see what they cook up. Julia Angwin, The Markup, it's coming this spring. We'll provide links to Julia's previous investigations at ProPublica in our newsletter. And hopefully you have been seeing the incredible art that we have commissioned from the data analysis firm Accurat to go with each episode. They're so beautiful. And then you're like, oh, and there's a data story embedded in each one. They are amazing. You can see it and sign up for the newsletter while you're there at zigzagpod.com. Also, the Radiotopia fundraiser is still going on. It is radiotopia.fm slash donate. And you may have noticed a little extra episode in your podcast feed this week. It explains a little bit more about that fundraiser that we're in the middle of. But really, it was a chance, it was an excuse for Jen to uh, make an experimental mashup of all our voice memos to each other with the help of our talented audio engineers. So think of it as a strange thank you note for listening and maybe even donating. We've come a very long way with your support. Hey, dude, it's like 3.30 in the morning. Okay, that didn't work. It's 4.11. I'm still thinking about a bunch of stuff. Okay, last one, sorry. It just occurred to me that I had one more thought. This episode was produced by me, Jen Poyan, and Thalia Beatty. David Herman was our audio engineer and composer. Many thanks to our other audio engineer and composer, Dan DeZula. Zigzag comes from Stable Genius Productions in partnership with Civil. We are proud members of Radiotopia from PRX. I'm Anoush Samarodi. Thank you so much for listening. And I'm going to get out of the closet now. using the shower next door. Can you hear that now? That doesn't sound good. I can hear their pipes through the wall in the... She's in the shower? Shut. Oh, she stopped. Oh, now the fan's on.